used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatments of animals. I mean, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, March 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson, and I'm joined here in the studio today by my co-host, Sinead Sanders. Hello. And our control room operator, Carol Davies-McIntosh. Hi there. Our feature interview today will be with fashion designer, activist, author, and educator Joshua Catcher. Joshua is the founder of the first vegan men's lifestyle website, The Discerning Brute, and the first vegan men's fashion brand, Brave Gentlemen. They make beautiful suits and shoes and other um, high-end menswear. He'll be speaking with us not only about his groundbreaking work on these two ventures, but also about his brand new book entitled Fashion Animals. That's coming up in just over half an hour, so stay tuned. We'll also be sharing a compelling presentation with you in about 15 minutes by Leslie Bisgold, Canada's first animal rights lawyer and a professor at the University of Toronto, on our our evolving relationship with non-human animals. But first, Sinead, you had some stories to share with us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this past week, I caught a couple of things and wound up in a couple of discussions as a result of a couple of stories I heard through the CBC. Um, and I mean, I feel kind of funny talking about CBC on co-op radio. Uh, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, social justice issues and, and issues involving a it usually takes a while for for those sorts of issues to get to mainstream media. First, you'll hear them right. at independent stations like us here at Co-op, you know. And so while we come on Animal Voices, we come in here every week and talk about ways, uh, ways that animals are oppressed and what we can be doing to help them. It's not very often that you hear these ideas being discussed on the CBC. Right. So, uh, so I was thrilled when I t- turned on the radio the other day and on a, there's a show called Ideas and uh, they do weekly sort of documentaries and uh, and this one this past week was called Animals and the Law and it was basically t- yeah talking about how animals are protected or as it were not protected by the law and how uh, they are legally seen as property in uh, in this country and in most places and uh and yeah it was they had actually a couple of animal rights lawyers on and it was really just it was great to hear people talking about ways to move forward in ways that we can actually not only protect animals but ways that we see animals um in our society and uh, so that was really encouraging it was also the first time i've ever heard it described on the CD, CBC the uh, the inherent cruelty of the dairy industry. That's sort mm-hmm. of where they started. How in the dairy industry, you uh, the cows have to be pregnant and they they have to give birth in order to produce milk, mm-hmm. and uh, and the babies get taken away and they get 
everyone gets slaughtered in the end when they aren't making enough money for the farmers and it's just this awful thing that most people if they just saw it if if they if this process was described to them they wouldn't think of it as something that they would support and yet it is just inherent to the dairy industry and right. people support it every day without thinking about it so absolutely yeah can i just chime in here mm-hmm. yeah yeah i just um actually it's interesting because i was talking to a friend of mine who uh, about dairy and um what they do to the cows and how they have to stay pregnant because they're mammals like everyone all of us right mm-hmm. so that to give milk um which most people don't know right they don't even think about it yeah and so he was asking me a bunch of different questions and um he came up he said this at one point he said um okay so I'm actually just looking for a loophole. Isn't oh. there a loophole somewhere? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And I said, I, I'm afraid there isn't, no. but keep asking your questions <laughs> and I'll answer no. it. Mammals can't give milk without getting pregnant. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. It doesn't work. That's, that's yeah. the thing. That's the thing about it. So this show was really interesting in the way that it talks about how... Um, getting rights for animals, protecting animals would affect businesses like that, different ways of seeing things. Really interesting. They did interview a couple of so-called happy sheep farmers. And uh, and I noticed while they let the farmers go on about how, yes, we care about about taking the best care of our animals. We make sure they're happy. We don't take away their babies immediately after so we can get the milk. We let We just sort of wean them off over six months or whatever, but they don't ask them or at least they don't air the response <laughs> of the like, the question of so if you love and respect them so much how do you feel really about ultimately killing them for profit in the right. end like they don't cover that on the show yeah, so exactly. uh so anyway. even even exploiting their reproductive function in the first place i feel like that's not a loving thing to do yeah yeah exactly so um and and uh yeah so that sort of brings me to the next story i heard on cbc it was um it was a story about a Manitoba fisherman who uh, he was going ice fishing and he saw a moose who had fallen through the ice and he and another man went and they rescued her and um, and he said again in this CBC article he said I've hunted moose all my life this scenario and pers- but this scenario and perspective has given me a different view it's hard to explain. It's a, a good feeling. We saved her, and there was no better feeling than that, mm-hmm. and uh, just getting her out of that situation. And uh, it says, as much as he loves eating moose meat, Jackson can't say if he will be able to eat it again. He said, this one definitely hit home, and locking eyes with her and being so close to her, it changed my perspective for sure. So wow. so that resulted <laughs> with me a, a few conversations this week about... Um, about just the individual individuality of animals and just how much of a difference that can make and uh, and seeing them face to face. I've heard people saying, oh, well, hunting is better than buying meat from the grocery store, though. And you go, well, yeah, if you look at it a certain way, sure, it is, absolutely. But but still, it's it's harming someone when you don't need to, you mm-hmm. know, like would like you'd be angry if someone came to your house for lunch and you offered them all this plant based, awesome, delicious food and they decided to eat your cat instead. You right, know, like exactly. you'd be angry. So just importance of uh of seeing animals as individuals and uh, let's just remember that moving forward and look up those cbc pieces they're good yeah absolutely i was i was struck by that story as well i couldn't believe um you know it's just amazing sometimes what 
can happen, you know, a single experience sort of changing somebody's perspective on that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, who knows how many individual moose that man has killed over, you know, since he was a kid. And uh, all of a sudden, yeah, rescuing this one from from the ice. She was in distress. She was looking at him. They were connecting. And uh, suddenly something just clicked. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Suddenly just seeing them as individuals rather than resources. That's yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, visit sanctuaries, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because that, that's a great way to enable a person to to see these animals up, up front and in person and to realize that they're emotional and intelligent and happy beings who want to live and they like to play and and uh, you know they 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 express all the same basically emotions that enjoys in life that we humans do. And once, mm-hmm. just like the the hunter encountered the moose, now he can't eat a moose anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to tell him it's it's like that with every single animal. And if that moose was able to touch him like that, then I invite him and, and anyone else to to visit an animal sanctuary. And we have some here near Vancouver. And just take a look where wherever you live, there's probably an animal sanctuary near you absolutely and i want to remind people really quickly too that as far as as hunting instead of of shopping at the grocery store goes just a reminder that of all the mammals on earth 96 percent are livestock and humans and only four percent are wild animals so you know let's can we just leave them alone that is yeah that is a, a compelling statistic that's pretty amazing how much uh farming has taken over the entire world and yeah. breeding animals for food, you know, just at that exponential rate. It's it's pretty incredible. Time to listen to the Earth. Turn the airwaves over to the voices of creatures, frogs, birds, insects, and more, and turn up the volume on the call for climate action. Listen to the 24-hour circadian rhythm of the Saturna Islands. The real-time broadcast of the beautiful and complex soundscape exposes interconnections between the creatures in the marsh and the people listening. Join Vancouver Cooperative Radio and other campus and community stations across Canada for the third annual Wetland Project Slow Radio Broadcast on Earth Day 2019. CFRO will be real-time broadcasting from 4 a.m. Monday, April 22nd until 6 a.m. Tuesday, April 23rd. Now we have some events. This Sunday, March 31st, enjoy an Afro brunch cooked by Kula Kitchen and hosted by the Juice Truck on Fifth Avenue just off Main Street. We've had Kula, the the Kula Kitchen gals on the show before. They offer delicious Afro-vegan and Caribbean cuisine. And and this five-course brunch will feature both savory and sweet crepes served with syrup and plantains, sautéed mixed greens, and East African polenta, porridge made with fonio, which is a seed that is traditionally used as as a cereal in Northern Africa, Um, tea, lassie, all sorts of good stuff, and chocolate mousse for dessert, so you really cannot go wrong. That sounds awesome. (laughs) I'm I'm planning to go to that, actually. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. They they make such amazing food. Yeah, like you said, we had um, Asha and Jessica of Kula Foods on the show a few months ago. If you want to check out that interview, you can uh, search for Kula Foods, K-U-L-A, on our website, animalvoices.org. Mm-hmm. They were awesome, and their food is great. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, they don't have a shop front or anything right now, but they do have these occasional events in collaboration with the Juice Truck. And so this is one of them. And, yeah, 
five course brunch, all plant based. And um, in addition to the meal, there will also be live music provided by East African UBC student Turunesh. Tur- I'm sorry for the pronunciation. <laughs> Um, plus, a uh, YouTube vlogger and lifestyle coach, Akeem Pierre, will be there to speak about how food can nourish and bring people together. So again, this event is this Sunday, March 31st from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Juice Truck, located on 5th Avenue, just west of Main Street. You can get tickets or find more information through the Afro Brunch event page on Kula's Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Vancouver. And another thing we got coming up here in the coming week, baking classes with Vogue Cakes, which is cool because Vogue Cakes are delicious. Vogue is a, um, a local vegan baking company, and uh, they've got products available in supermarkets around the city. And uh, next Sunday, you can learn how to make delicious animal-free baking just like them. Cool. So in this class, you will learn how to bake Streusel coffee cake in a flavor of your choice, cinnamon, lemon, chocolate, plus a sour cream glaze, and how to make a decadent French toast with your leftover coffee cake. Yum. If you have leftover coffee. Cake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like worth holding some to the side for. Um, so, yeah, these cl- this class is... Uh, next Sunday, April 7th from 2 to 5 p.m. at 1507 Powell Street at the Coho Commissary. Uh, the cost is $65, but it's only $55 if you register before Monday, April 1st. You can register by emailing order at voguecakes.com with your name and contact info, and uh, there's more info on their Facebook page, Vogue Cakes. And, uh, and if you can't make the class, but you're curious to try the delicious animal-free baking, Vogue Cakes are available, as I said, across the city at uh, various IGAs, Super Value on Commercial Drive, Palm Markets, Nestor's Markets, and more. So just take a look in uh, the baked goods section and you might find some Vogue Cakes. Have you tried them before? I haven't been able to yet, actually, but I really want to. They look super good. Yeah. Oh, okay. The s'mores, brownies in particular, and the Boston cream layer cake. I actually campaigned (laughs) Super Value on Commercial Drive. I wrote to them, and I wrote to Vogue, and I said, you're near my house, and you need to get these cakes in here. And so they have them there now, and they're just, it's been great, but it's dangerous because that place is open 24-7. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) There have been like a few nights out at a show or whatever walking home with some friends and oops like we have cake for breakfast right (laughs) awesome (laughs) but in any case so Vogue Cakes um, I would recommend the class I'd recommend the cakes cool um if you have an animal-friendly event you'd like to have announced on the show, please send us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com or post to our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. Cool. Thank you very much for that, Sinead. So, moving on, we are presenting a talk by Leslie Bisgold, given at TEDxU of T at the University of Toronto. Uh, Leslie Bisgold is Canada's first animal rights lawyer. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law, where she instructs a course on animals and the law. And she is also the author of the only Canadian law text on the subject of animal rights called Animals and the Law. So, this is Leslie Bisgold at TEDxUofT.
want to begin by making two statements, one at a time, and I'm going to ask you all, if you don't mind, to raise your hand if you agree. So here's the first one. You ready? Animals should be treated humanely. I can barely see you, but it looks like lots of hands going up. Okay, thanks. You can put your hands down. Here's the second one. Animals should not be made to suffer unnecessarily. Thank you. Seems like most people agree. And I would bet that if I ventured outside and put those statements to passers-by, I would likely find that most people out there agree too. It's not really surprising, is it? Most, um, we, more than, more than half of the households in North America have companion animals. And most of us are very upset when we hear the occasional story in the news about some horrible act that's been done to a dog or cat or other animal. And the law codifies this perspective, which is to say that virtually every jurisdiction in North America has laws that say animals should be treated humanely, animals should not be made to suffer unnecessarily. And those laws are useless. They do nothing, and they in no way protect animals from human-caused suffering in any meaningful way, I should say. So I thought what I would talk about is why that's the case and why it's time to reevaluate our relationship with other animals and the emerging field of animal rights law that is doing just that. So let's say that I wasn't really here because I cared about doing this talk, but because my child has a heart problem and is in need of a transplant to save her life. And I wanted access to a large group of people whom I could discreetly look over while I was doing this talk to see who among you looks nice and healthy and strong. And when this event ends, I were to kidnap one of you whisk you away to a secret surgery where I could remove your heart to be donated to my child. It's nothing personal, you all seem very nice, but I don't love you as much as I love my child, and your heart is necessary for her survival. Would that be morally or legally justifiable? Certainly not. While you are using your heart, no other person can claim any moral or legal right to it, no matter how compelling the reason. Among legal equals, it's absurd to use the word necessary in this context, and we just don't do it. But it's different when it comes to animals. When we see that laws protect animals from unnecessary suffering, they seem superficially impressive, but it doesn't take long, and you don't have to be a lawyer to figure out that if the law prohibits causing unnecessary suffering, it creates a corollary, meaning it permits us to cause necessary suffering. What is necessary suffering? Well, we write the laws, we enforce the laws, we interpret them. Turns out, it's necessary for an animal to suffer whenever we say so. So, our laws prohibit gratuitous suffering, the kind that's caused surely by what we might call wicked intent. But as soon as there's a human purpose, and really almost any purpose will do, that suffering is necessary and protected. And it's been that way for a really long time. Remember philosopher John Locke? Can you think back to the 17th century? So he conceived of the notions of property that are now central to our legal system, in part because he was trying to find a way to allocate competing human interests in animals and other natural resources in a principled way. And of course, back then, nobody thought of animal interests as one of those principles to consider. So in a system of laws that grew to esteem property rights, animals became property, and humans became property owners. And so it remains. And a central rule of property is that an owner can use her thing however she sees fit. She can do whatever she wants with her thing, so long as she doesn't use that thing to hurt somebody else. But the thing itself has no rights. So this idea 
that animals are things that serve our purposes, that they are our property, has been really powerful. It has entrenched. And it now facilitates the systematic suffering of billions, with a B, of animals every year in North America in a variety of industries. So I'm going to give you just one example. In the Canadian agriculture industry alone, every year, 700 million animals are intensively confined, are mutilated in a variety of very painful procedures without anesthetic. They're living in their own waste. Many of them are sick and diseased with broken bones and open wounds. They're beaten, electrocuted. You know, when you see them traveling in those trucks on the highway on the way to slaughter, for many of them, that's the first time they've ever been outside in their lives. And they're so depleted that several million of them arrive every year at the slaughterhouse already dead. And then there's research and fashion and entertainment and sports. So for every story that we hear in the news about some terrible act of violence having been done to an individual animal, there is an industrial counterpart where that violence is normalized and multiplied by hundreds or thousands or millions of times. So it's the institutional imperative that is such a big problem for animals today. And Chomsky has discussed this in other contexts, how even really good people can do really bad things when institutions demand it. So in the animal context, industry has embedded practices that would be considered monstrous if they were done to our own pet dog even if sometimes those practices are carried out by people who love their own dogs and are otherwise kind and admirable people. That's why another part of the problem is the law's focus on cruelty to animals. That's always how you hear a wrong described, right? When you want to object to something done to an animal, you say, it's cruel. But cruelty is the wrong word because it connotes a malevolent intent, doesn't it? Causing harm for harm's sake, and, and that's rarely the case. The people who engage in this institutional violence may be desensitized or profit-driven or desperate, as in the case of some agricultural workers, but they're rarely motivated sheerly by wicked intent. In fact, in some cases, the intent can be quite noble. Imagine two people coming home from work at the end of the day. One of them had a horrible day, he's in a terrible mood, and his dog will not stop barking. He has a blowtorch in the garage. So he restrains his dog on her leash, goes out and gets the blowtorch, comes back and burns the dog. The second person is a researcher, and she's presently engaged in a study about the efficacy of various treatments on burns. And she's returning home from a day at the laboratory where she has restrained several dogs and blowtorched them in pursuit of her study. First person had no real purpose for burning his dog that way, and he might be charged with causing unnecessary suffering to the dog. But the second person not only won't be charged, she will be protected by her institution, um, supported with public tax dollars, rewarded with professional recognition if her results get published. And the rest of us, if we ever hear about such things at all, will be assured that the experiment was humane. Just as we are assured by agriculture industry spokespeople that all the things I described a moment ago are humane too. So when industry gives us these assurances, we do well to ask ourselves, what is their interest in having us believe that? And we do well to consider that industry itself writes the voluntary codes of practice that govern most animals in industrial use, that there's hardly any government oversight. You know, I became involved in animal rights when I 
came across an image that disturbed me. And you know how it is once you see things, there's no unseeing them. So I felt compelled to learn more, and I learned how a cow becomes a stake, and how an elephant becomes a circus performer, and how a coyote becomes the trim on the hood of a coat. Those images are not offered to us, and those responsible for them go to great lengths to keep them from us, but they are there for the finding. And unless humane means horrible and profitable, there is nothing humane in those images. And nor are those images the result of a few rotten apples, which is the next uh, assurance industry give, gives us on the occasions when their practices are exposed. It's the normal, routine practices of exploitation that are rotten. So this has all been very bleak. But hang in, because um, this brings us to the new dimensions part of this talk. You see, we don't treat animals badly because they're property. We classify animals as property so that we can treat them badly. We don't have to. We can do better. We can classify them differently. And the moral imperative to do so has been pressing for 150 years since Darwin revolutionized our understanding about our place in the animal world with his theory of evolution. Darwin explained that you are all a bunch of animals, right? We are all animals, more or less closely related to one another by virtue of our descent from different ancestors or from common ancestors, and that animals differ from one another in degree, but not in kind. And this was revolutionary because we've traditionally justified the differential treatment that we give to animals on the basis of some assumed categorical differences between us and them, right? They don't think, they don't feel, they don't communicate. But Darwin discredited those assumptions. And they've been discredited much further still by various branches of natural science and applied science in the 15 decades since. And our laws have lost their factual premise. So the moral implications of this evolution revolution have taken a long time to sink in, but no serious thinker disputes anymore that animals think and feel and communicate, that they are the subjects of a life. We're starting to appreciate that animal life is much more like a web than the pyramid we've been used to drawing, that they are literally our kin. Now, there are differences between humans and other animals, of course, just as there are differences between humans. Right? We have this notion of human equality, but that's not because we're actually equal in our capacities or abilities. Think about it. Some people are, are taller than others. Some people are more intelligent. Some people have nicer dispositions. We have different genders and disabilities and religions. Some people can compose operas. Some can't sing a note. Some can win Olympic medals in hockey. Some can't skate. <laughs> So we have many differences, but we have decided that none of those differences is morally relevant when it comes to protecting our fundamental interests, like our interests in living our own lives and not being hurt for somebody else's purpose. In another talk, we might explore whether human rights operate more in theory than in practice, but at least we are working on it. We are working on it, and that's where animal rights theory comes along. It asks us to confront this question. What are the morally relevant differences between humans and other animals that make it acceptable for us to hurt them in ways that would never be acceptable to hurt one another? So as we wrestle with this question, the lack of a comfortable answer is propelling the development of animal rights law, where we try to generate legal rights for animals by eroding their property status. 
You can think of a right as a barrier that uh, exists between you and everybody who stands to benefit by hurting you or exploiting you. It's what stands between me and you and stops me from taking your heart for someone I love more. So in animal rights law, we're not trying to extend human rights to animals, as you sometimes hear, right? Nobody thinks animals should have the right to vote or get married or, or have a good education. It's really about establishing the right to have their fundamental interests respected when we consider taking actions that will affect them. And that could mean changing their status from property to legal person. And if it seems strange to think of an animal as a legal person, consider that a whole array of inanimate constructs, corporations, churches, trusts, municipalities, are all legal persons in that they have legally protected interests and they can go to court and advance them. And animals are the only sentient beings who aren't. So it's a long road to peaceful coexistence between humans and other animals. And that is partly because even though all of us say we don't want animals to suffer unnecessarily, most of us, wittingly or unwittingly, to some degree are users of animals or consumers of their various bits and pieces and we've proved as a whole pretty reluctant to give up all the privileges that come with our superior legal status. But we're starting to see things differently. The animal rights movement is gaining credibility and momentum and laws are not fixed forever, right? Law is a social institution that is meant to evolve over time as hearts and minds change. So law will begin to reflect our biological kinship with other animals as soon as we decide we really want it to. Thank you. So once again, that was Leslie Bisgold speaking at the University of Toronto. Yeah, that was a really great talk. I love hearing her talk. Really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots of good stuff to say there. Good stuff to think about. So, um, you are listening to Animal Voices here on one hundred point five FM CFRO, Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. And uh, now let's get into some news um, out of Ontario. Um, some rather messed up, a few messed up stories out of Ontario, but I'll stick oh. to this one for now. <laughs> uh, last week, the Ontario government announced a new multi-million dollar funding program set to boost, of all the things, the horse racing industry. Not, <laughs> not education or healthcare or animal protection horse racing. So, <laughs> um, writer and animal advocate Jessica Scott Reed had a piece published in The Star this past week on the topic, and, uh, and she writes that Ontario is set to provide $10 million per year to the horse racing industry, which is entirely unnecessary and, uh, and definitely harmful to animals. So this comes after 22 horses died over the course of 66 days between this past December and early March at the Santa Anita Park racetrack in California. Um, horses there were breaking their legs and ankles, some being euthanized right on the track. 
And after facing several protests, national media and uh, attention and scrutiny, um, Santa Anita has now suspended all races indefinitely. And uh, and yeah, deaths in horse in horse racing are far from rare. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a recent story about this in Sports Illustrated where the author Tim Layden says that animal deaths are, quote, part of the sport of thoroughbred, of thoroughbred racing, painful and controversial. Horses die, tears are shed, and the business of racing lurches forward. Wow. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a pretty awful thing, but an increasing amount of people are no longer accepting the use, abuse, and death of animals for entertainment, including horse racing. Mm-hmm. Um, horses used for racing in Canada suffer catastrophic in- injury rates and deaths, breaking their ankles and legs or collapsing from illnesses, overwork, travel, and stress. Um, they're often fed performance-enhancing drugs, sometimes to mask injuries and force a horse to keep performing instead of being allowed to rest and recover. And uh, rather than paying for veterinary care, too often the horses are euthanized if they can't make a profit for their so-called caretakers. And, uh, And rather than retiring to grassy pastures, racehorses who do manage to survive their racing careers are typically sold at kill auctions um, trucked long distances and they end their lives in horrifying slaughterhouses so uh, not quite the fun and fancy day at the races some people still envision and I know people who say they love horses and that's why they love horse racing but uh, in light of these facts I'd encourage people to consider the cost of these animals the next time you're watching a race and ask yourself it's if if it's worth it so uh and yeah. like as jessica said at the end of her piece of all sectors in need of funding the ontario government's multi-million dollar support of an industry as outdated and elitist as horse racing is simply unnecessary unsustainable and even unethical yeah and it's absolutely true it's bizarre i think it's one of those situations where like any sort of animal exploitation situation whether it's horse racing or animal farming and you get people saying well we love the animals we love the animals but if you wouldn't treat them if you aren't if you're treating them differently than you'd treat a human friend then you know time to reevaluate because you know the science says that uh that we all have the same capacity to feel and it's just not fair absolutely what we do um and uh, just quickly here um south, <laughs> south america's largest egg producer is is um debuting a plant-based egg brazil-based grupo mantiqueira South America's largest egg producer recently developed Novo, um, which is a vegan replacement for eggs, um, to meet the growing demand for plant-based products in the region. And uh, and it's ba- it's they use pea protein, which is a common thing in a lot of these dairy alternatives now, or in egg alternatives as well. And uh, and yeah, the the innovation manager of the company said that. Um, that GFI, the Good Food Institute in the United States, has been really helpful. And she said, I was born and raised in the animal protein industry and could see from the inside out that there are much more sustainable ways to feed the world. So I think it's encouraging when people who are born and raised in the animal farming industry and protein industry, and here they are saying, like, this is not sustainable and we need 
to get into something else. So, yeah. And we can all recognize that. So look for the plant-based products everywhere. They are everywhere around this city now and we can make a difference with what we're choosing to consume absolutely thank you very much for that Sinead my guest today is Joshua Catcher a fashion designer activist author and educator who has taught at Parsons the New School and LIM College and has lectured internationally on ethical and sustainable fashion Mr. Catcher started the first men's ethical lifestyle website the discerning brute in 2008 and then launched the first vegan ethically made menswear fashion brand Brave Gentlemen in two, uh, 2010. His new book, Fashion Animals, was just released earlier this month. Hello, Joshua, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hi, thank you so much for having me. For sure. Thank you for being here. So first of all, I'd love to hear a bit of your backstory. Um, when and how did you get into fashion design? When and how did you become vegan? And what sparked your interest in marrying the two to create and promote ethical fashion? Yeah, so, you know, I I never imagined that I would be in the fashion industry. It was always something that I saw as um, an industry that represented ideas and values that I really didn't align with. I saw it as something that was a little bit silly and frivolous and about vanity and about surface. And I think that a lot of people view fashion that way. And it wasn't until I really got interested in understanding identity and uh, the semiotics of dress and what fashion represents and how it can create aspiration and desire and uh, and and communicate ideas about how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen to the world um, and how much of a history that that has it wasn't until I really started looking into that and, and looking for creative ways to be an activist that I realized that I had really underestimated fashion's impact. Um, and as, as a vegan, I, I, I went vegan over, over 20 years ago. It's, I think, been about 23 years. Um, it was something that was pretty practical. I just I, I learned about what was happening to animals in food production, and I said, this is not something that I want to participate in, and uh, I don't agree with it, and I decided to... Um, eliminate it from my life and in doing that I think it was the single best decision I ever made uh, it really opened up so many doors and introduced me to so many new and exciting ideas and innovations and um, it, it quite the contrary to being a giving up it was much more of um, an awakening and an introduction to um, uh, an entire new way of, uh, of experiencing everything Wow, super cool. So, as I mentioned earlier, you founded the Discerning Brute, which was the first men's ethical left, uh, excuse me, lifestyle website. Uh, tell us more about this. Yeah, the Discerning Brute I launched in 2008. At the time, it was uh, a way that I could write about men's lifestyle through the lens of sustainable and ethical uh, fashion. And it was something that was a little bit self-serving. I, I was frustrated in what was out there as far as options for guys who were vegan or anybody who appreciates masculine aesthetics who is vegan. And I was trying to find all the best things that were out there and, and look for interesting personalities and stories and put it all together in one place. And up until that point, I feel like a lot of the media and the content surrounding um, ethical and sustainable and vegan lifestyles was really geared towards a more femme uh, 
audience. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that, which, you know, we could get into another time. It's, uh, we could have a whole show on just that, probably, yeah. <laughs> um, about masculinity and, uh, and veganism. But um, it, uh, it was a website that was received very well and, uh, and I think was a, a bit early in, in uh, trying to address veganism from a masculine standpoint. So um, that led to the development of Brave Gentleman, my line, because in writing about all of this, stuff that was happening early on, you know, 2008 was, gosh, 10 years ago, um, I realized that there were things that I wanted that didn't exist, and so I decided to, to try to make them, and that's how uh, Brave Gentleman started. Great. Um, so I've been aware of your fashion brand, uh, as you mentioned, Brave Gentleman, for some time now. Um, you make beautiful high-end suits and other menswear. Your fall 2018 menswear line was modeled by actor Alan Cumming, beautiful pictures, and was even featured in Vogue magazine, which was thrilling to see, created quite a buzz in the international vegan community. So congratulations on that. Um, what are some of the joys and challenges that you've encountered in creating high-end men's where that is completely free of animal components? The joys, I think, are that I'm getting to really explore what are probably some of the most exciting textile innovations and really trying to follow and learn about um, all of these new uh, methodologies of making materials. And in in doing all of this, I, I sort of became an expert, which led to... Um, teaching at different universities. So I taught at Parsons the New School, which is one of the top design schools in the world, and um, and I've lectured internationally on um, on these topics. But my research, um, when it, when you look at Brave Gentleman through a research lens, it's really a proof of concept, and I think that that's probably a, a really a really beautiful joy to have is to have this proof of concept that you can have a ethically made vegan sustainable and high design brand that creates ideas about how we want to be perceived without having to compromise on on those ethics and you can celebrate those cherished aesthetics um those those classic aesthetics that that we're so drawn to without uh compromising our ethics and um, the challenges have been uh, many, <laughs> and um, just being an entrepreneur, being a small business owner is challenging enough, and then on top of that, having these really stringent standards that you're trying to keep up with, uh, and those are labor standards and sustainability standards and obviously um, the, the standards of, uh, of ethical veganism. So... Um, it's a real challenge getting uh, just just making ends meet when you're first starting out with something like this and and keeping it in the long run, uh, keeping it going. So I think that the challenges have never been getting attention or getting people excited about it. That's always been the fun and and exciting part of it. the The hard part is is just trying to make a business uh, succeed in in this financial climate in this in this culture at this time um but you know we're trying we're doing it yeah that's awesome it's it's great to see um so yeah i want to get now to your book fashion animals it was just released very recently um what compelled you to write a book about how animals are used in fashion 
It was something that I wanted to research and find out about, and when I went out looking for the book or the essays that were there, there was very few things that were written about this topic. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that fashion is not taken very seriously. As I mentioned um, uh, when you first introduced me, fashion is seen as something that is about frivolity and it's almost brushed off as something that's not serious and, uh, and that it's silly and that it's anti-intellectual uh, and represents some of these the worst qualities, uh, vanity and uh, um, selfishness. And uh, so it, it's kind of brushed off as something that shouldn't be considered and should be avoided. And then at the same time, animals aren't taken very seriously in the larger context uh, of our culture. And so when you have those two things intersecting, um, it's not a surprise that nobody has really looked at that intersection very seriously. So it, there was a need for it, and I wanted to establish uh, a starting point. The book is really an overview, uh, a historical overview, a, f um, a theoretic overview of how to look at animals as they appear in the fashion industry, whether it is their body parts as as garments or whether it is their their image in advertising uh, the presence of animals in fashion is something that has a long history and is something that continues to this day and is very relevant and it unveils uh, ideology it unveils the way that we view animals and the way that we perceive our power and their power and uh, it, it's something that I hope the book will provide a, a, a launch pad for further research and for more uh, more depth and more breadth in this topic. Absolutely. The book, I noticed, is full of historical examples of illustrations depicting people wearing animal skins, furs, feathers, uh, standing next to the live members of the species that these body parts were taken from. Uh, can you tell us more about this phenomenon? Yes, this was the impetus for writing the book. I was looking at images in fashion magazines with um, models wearing a fur coat or you know a leather a leather pair of shoes while at the same time cozying up to um, a kitten or a fox or a baby cow or a sheep. Uh, a lot of a lot of these images have uh, people holding lambs, and there there is the use of the animal, the cute animal, to sell and to get people to get their eyes on an advertisement or an editorial. And then at the same time, there is this other animal that is almost invisible that has been turned into an object. And both of those animals are in the image, but only one of them is really being given. Any, any form of validation. And so I found that disconnect to be really troubling, and I wanted to understand why it was happening and how frequently it was happening and, and what it meant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that, that struck me in your book, and this is something that that I and many other activists have called attention to over the years is how you shed some light on the the sexism and misogyny that are often rife in activism on behalf of animals used for fashion, particularly anti-fur activism. Um, I was actually surprised to read that this pattern has a rather long history in certain areas of the world. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, absolutely. There, There's a very long history of, um, of scapegoating, um, you know, 
for lack of a better term, um, women and uh, and and other you know pe- people who who are uh, oppressed. Specifically, when we look at the history of the millinery trade, which is hat making and mm-hmm. feather, and the use of feathers, um, there there was an incident where uh, Virginia Woolf um, responded to this accusation that it was women's fault that birds were being driven to extinction for um, the prevalence of feathers and hats, which was a, a real thing that was happening um, in Europe um, in at the turn of the twentieth century. There was such a demand for um, plumes and feathers for hats that many bird species were driven to extinction or on the brink of extinction just to satisfy this fashion trend. And what happened was there was a big public uproar about it, but one of the first things was that people turned and blamed what they called women's vanity. Mm -hmm. And putting all the blame on women and this idea that fashion is a women's a woman's concern not a man's concern even though there are many men who participate you know in in the business and in the hunting and in the consumption of these products as well but it um so women were blamed and virginia wolf wrote this response in defense of women saying you know is it a is it a graver sin to torture birds than to be unjust to women? And she used this term, sex antagonism, which there wasn't a word for, for sexism yet. And so she used this term, sex antagonism, that I think um, was, was the first uh, big public expression of this idea that um, the women were being specifically singled out because of their sex and being blamed for the decimation of birds. And so the the concern for animals in the fashion industry has a really clear intersection with the history of feminism here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Joshua. It's uh, Shanid here. I was just, uh, yeah, listening, listening to what you were saying, I, it just makes me think of when I first started getting involved with animal activism over a decade ago, and I remember... Okay talking to people about uh, about fur protests and yeah discussing some of the stuff you've just been saying and uh, and someone it was it was pointed out someone said it's easier to it's it's easier to tell a woman wearing a fur coat that she's that she's wrong or funding abuse than a man in a leather jacket right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah so I mean all, uh, you know uh, the gender issue is related in a lot of ways for sure but i think there's also with leather there compared with fur fur is seen as like this glamorous hollywood sort of thing in in the commercial context um and uh, and leather is seen as like well we can't possibly replace leather because that's actually a necessary thing that people need mm-hmm. so is that something that you've encountered in your work sort of um certain perceptions about that Absolutely, and uh, that, that's a very common comment that I get, too, when I talk about the fur industry or the wool industry. You always have somebody who's going to be like, well, what about, what about leather or what about this other thing? And I think what it, un- what, it, what it unveils is that people don't really have a great understanding of how fashion is made. They think that it's all the same, that it's all this one singular industry. Um, the leather industry and the fur industry are quite different, and they are not always connected. 
and they have different sources and different functions, and they represent different things as well. So I think that um, confronting fur is uh, a very specific thing for a reason, because fur historically has represented power, Mm -hmm. and it's represented royalty. And that idea of fur being worn by the most wealthy and the most powerful and the people with the most access um, continues to this day, the tradition of being perceived uh, in fur as as having access to that sort of uh, that sort of power. Um, whereas leather is ubiquitous; it's everywhere. It's car seats, it's shoes, it's you know bags, it's uh, it's everything, and it isn't meant to be seen necessarily in the same way that fur is meant to be seen as a visual object. So, what, just looking at it from a symbolic standpoint, these are two very different things. Um, but from an industrial and economic standpoint, leather is not a byproduct, as a lot of people like to think that it is. So um, we can't really look at it as this uh, as this making use of waste, which is a convenient thing that people like to tell themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, leather really represents the most economically important aspect of the slaughter industries. Meat is often subsidized and it isn't worth very much financially. Whereas leather has a huge markup, and these people can make a lot of money selling skins. So we really can't see it as a byproduct. It's a co-product, or it's a meat subsidy, or it's the primary product, if you're looking at it strictly through an economic standpoint. Um, And I think because these industries are so different, they require very different approaches to combat it. and I think that the the anti-fur movement has really picked up on and carried through this confrontation about fur as a symbol and what it represents and how and how disconnected that representation is from the reality of how fur is produced. Yes, yeah, that's fascinating. So we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you, uh, Joshua, in your view, what are some of the most effective approaches that can be taken to work toward an end to using animals for fashion? I'm really motivated and excited about innovation and design. I think that shaking a finger at people and telling them they're cruel and wrong for using animal materials, it has its place, and it's been, you know, it's, it's something that we've been doing for several decades now. But I think something important to do in addition to that, or maybe instead of that, is to pivot and instead of taking a defensive standpoint, take a more um, uh, inspirational standpoint and let's focus on what are these incredibly exciting uh, innovations in material technology and design. And I think creating financial and design opportunities and incentives in the same way that the fur industry creates opportunities and incentives for design students, we need to be creating opportunities for people to be using some of these new marvelous materials. And there is a we are on the brink of the next industrial revolution when it comes to what we're about to be making things out of, whether it's mycelium, like mushroom-based leather, or whether it's lab-grown proteins like lab-grown silk, we are going to be able to replace animal materials with superior materials. It's no longer just an alternative. This is stuff that will outperform and outdesign anything that we can grow on an animal's back. So it really truly is now about making a choice about good design. And I think we need to start making that argument more. 
Absolutely. Joshua Catcher, thank you very much for coming on Animal Voices today and sharing your experience and insights with us. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it for everything you guys are doing. Cheers. If you'd like to learn more about Joshua Catcher's work, visit thediscerningbrute.com or bravegentleman.com and be sure to check out his new book, Fashion Animals. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us here next Friday, April 5th at noon for more thought-provoking animal-friendly programming. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. Now we'll leave you with a song. This is the Benson Orchestra of Chicago with the Cat's Whiskers. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today and remember to be kind to the animals.